Praise God. Good morning. Yesterday, um, several of you came to our place in Cookville, and uh, it was a very tremendous blessing, I must say. Uh, we're very, very grateful. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, like someone said that um, in English, when you appreciate what someone has done for you, you say thank you. But sometimes thank you actually is not enough to express what you feel. But um, because of the constraint of language, that's the only thing we can say. We want to say we, we thank you. Uh, we know that um, so many of you would have uh, loved to come, you know, and uh, we are really, really very grateful. I, I, like I was telling uh, Robin this morning, I've not finished going through the gifts. <laughs> and in fact, I was trying to ask uh, my wife, so what's this, what's this? Uh, even, even she herself, who had more time than me, is still trying to, you know, we are really, really, really very, very grateful. Um, it's a testimony to what the, the blood of Christ can do. Uh, you don't know us. We came from a very faraway country just to be in your midst. And um, in spite of the fact that we are not related any other way apart from this uh, blood that was shed for each and every one of us, uh, you have accepted us and um, you've shown that uh, we are one. And... Um, we are very, very grateful. Uh, God will bless you for all the efforts, all the, the thoughts, uh, the, the cost, uh, and everything. God bless you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, definitely when the baby arrives, that's Esther. Her name is Esther. Uh, when she arrives, we'll all, we'll all be here by God's grace. Uh, you'll get to see the baby and we'll come to fellowship with you. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful because of uh, what you have done. The Bible says that in your body you broke down the wall that divided us and you brought us together as one. We thank you for this privilege to be in your presence this morning. We thank you because of your word. The Bible says uh, that your word gives life, it gives an inheritance uh, amongst those who are sanctified by faith. We thank you because of the promise that it holds for us. Uh, Lord, we ask this morning that uh, by your spirit that you will speak to each one of our hearts. We ask, Lord, that uh, your word will breathe life. Uh, it will bring light to our very soul, to our spirit. It will bring strength to our bodies in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we look up to you uh, for the, this time that we have. And we thank you, Lord, for how you've been with us from the beginning of this service, for all that you've already said. And Lord, we, we trust that uh, all of what you are doing today will produce fruits to the glory of your name. We thank you for sharing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Um, <clears throat> Today, we want to talk about the bedrocks of our faith. Uh, I must tell you that it was very difficult to, to, to decide on what to talk about. Um, there were several things that came to my mind, uh, things that I say, okay, maybe uh, this will do. Ultimately, I thought we should discuss this, uh, this topic. First of all, I wanted to title it Bedrocks of Faith because probably that looks more, uh, that looks uh, elegant. <laughs> but I say, no, it's not just faith. It's our faith. There's a particular faith we're we are talking about. Now, I, I was born in, in 1980. Someone said I don't look as old, <laughs> uh, that I look younger than my age. But it's true, I was born in 1980. Um, I was born... At, what I, at the period I call the, the, the trailing edge of a revival in Nigeria. And there's something about a revival, if you have experienced a revival before, it's in the air. 
when there's a revival in an area, in an environment, you can almost feel it, you know. So I was born in 80, and in, in, in 1980, from the 70s to the 80s, there's what they call the deeper life revival in Nigeria. And so when I was born as a child, I, nobody preached to me. You know, nobody preached to me. My father wasn't such a, a Christian to say. In fact, my father comes from a Muslim background, uh, Muslim stroke animist background. I don't think his father was a... I think his father was a traditional religion person. And so I, when I grew up, I asked my father, how did you come by the name Josiah? Because I didn't expect him to have that name for me. Uh, my elder sister's name is Ejura. Or Alami. Alami is just a day of the week. Okay. My elder brother's name is Ubede. Ubede means, uh, yeah, thank God, something like that. Now, when it came to my turn, none of them has a Bible name. But when it came to my turn, my father named me Josiah. So I asked him, why did you name me Josiah? It's strange because my two elder siblings didn't have any Bible name. So he said, well, that when I was born, he just decided to read the Bible. <laughs> and he just found this name, Josiah. You know, and, and he gave me the name. But then I, I was saying that I experienced a little bit of revival. And um, growing up, I, I must say that when I was at least, I think about five years, five years, without hearing any preaching, uh, I was already making efforts to pray. And actually the only prayer I could pray was the grace. Because we didn't even go to church. Our church was far off. My parents didn't have a car. So they had to take public transport to go to church. And so it was such a burden to carry the family along. So most times they left us at home. So it wasn't as if I had a church background to say. But revival is something you have to experience. You know, and I was praying, I was fasting, I wasn't taught, you know. So I would just pray by 12 or so. I would go to the room and kneel down and say, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now forevermore. That was the only prayer I could pray. You know, amen. I did that for years, <laughs> for years. And that is because there was a revival. So my experience is that I want to, my, my, my thinking, the way I understand God is that I want to touch him. I'm not satisfied with just doing the activities. I'm not satisfied with that. I'm not satisfied. It's good I come to church, I participate in all that is happening and all of that, but all of that alone does not satisfy me. I want to experience God because that was how I was born. That was my very first experience. I experienced a little bit of that. So for many years, I would have that test to experience God, you know, as I read my Bible, as I pray, and I hope that you have that kind of desire to I hope that you are not just satisfied to you know just come to church just do the very minimum you know just making sure you don't go to hell just <laughs> just 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 do the minimum <laughs> I hope that is not your desire so, well we'll just do the minimum we go to church we pray make sure we don't do bad stuff no there's more there's more of God to be experienced here on earth not when we get to heaven. And I pray and hope that that is your desire. Uh, so uh, today we will look at um, some things that I think are very critical, especially for the time that we live in. Now, if you look at the text, you will discover that we've been very ambitious. There's no way we can cover what we said we will we cover. All right. So that's been very, very ambitious. Uh, so I think what we are going to do just really is to mention those things, is to mention those things. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 6, or maybe for a context, we should start from chapter 5, as we discuss the bedrocks of our faith. So the first thing I want to talk about is the necessity, the necessity for laying these bedrocks, or the necessity for making sure they are in place. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, Around from verse 5, I'll read very quickly. 
He says, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears, tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the first thing I want to say with regards to the necessity, the necessity of having these bedrocks in place. Now, you will see here that the Bible is talking about Christ himself. The Bible says he was the son. And you will think, concerning the matter I want to say, I want to talk about that, if anybody will have a free pass, it will be Christ. You know, why is it necessary? Why is it necessary for us to make sure that these bedrocks of our faith are in place? Why is it necessary, in other words, for us to lay a solid foundation? It is because there will be a matter, there will be a reason for us to fall away. There will be a reason. And you see, there is no escaping it. If anybody was going to escape, it would have been Christ. And since Christ did not escape it, None of us will escape it. None of us will escape this reason for falling away. And the thing that the Bible mentioned concerning Christ here is the subject of suffering. Did you see that? The Bible says that even though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And I've been here for three, four years, three years thereabout. I realize that the subject of suffering is not a subject that we are very, very familiar with here. You see, and perhaps you will say you, you are familiar with it, you suffer when your network is not very, very strong. <laughs> I don't intend to diminish that. That, that could be a form of suffering. <laughs> All right. You, you suffer, for instance, when you go to the hospital and you have to wait on a long queue. But the subject of suffering, as I listen to your news, you know, I, I was telling Grandma Harding that one of the, the things I'm, the, the I'm trying to be very disciplined about is that I listen to too much news. I don't like it. I don't like it, so I'm, I'm trying to, to be very disciplined about it. But as I listen to your news, I realize that even though you may not be experiencing it intensely now, you will soon experience it. You will most definitely soon begin to experience it. You will experience, because when you look at the argument, you just know that the other side will win eventually, however hard you try. Because what the other side is proposing is suitable to the flesh. And so they will win. And so in the future, you will be viewed as the enemy. When all these other forces and all of these that are contending now find a common ground, when they agree, they will just not understand why you cannot agree with them. They will not just understand why you cannot agree that it is right for people to kill their babies. They won't understand it. They will see you as the enemy. And so persecution will come. It hasn't come, but it will come. And so before it comes, it is good to make sure that these foundations are in place. There are several occasions, and one of it is what I just mentioned, that there will be a direct persecution because of your faith. Jesus told us so. Jesus said that in the world you will have tribulation. Do you know that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that to you it is given, not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for him. That's what the Bible says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the Bible says, For any man who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
And what the Bible is saying there is that it's not as if suffering has a value in delivering you from sin. It is that if you prepare your mind to suffer, then you will not sin. You see, what makes people to fall away is the fear of the cross. Am I right? And everybody has that opportunity. Even Christ himself had it. You remember Christ told the people that if I want, I will tell my father and he will do what? He will send six legions. So when it is your turn to face the cross, you will have the opportunity to dodge it. Christ had it, you will have it. All right. And in order for you not to dodge it, but you see, that cross that you could dodge is your path to glory. In order for you not to dodge it, you have to make sure now that you have all of these stones, if you like, you have them in place. That is what we see you through the coming days. Amen. So I've talked about direct persecution, that it will come. As long as we remain Christians, as long as we remain true, Jesus said that if any man will come after me, what should he do? Take up his cross and follow me. And if you know what the cross is, the cross that you are taking is the implement upon which you will die. <laughs> Am I right? That was, what, that was where Jesus died. Jesus took his cross. That was the implement that killed him. And your cross is about the same thing. And I don't intend to scare you. All right? I don't intend to scare you. I just want to tell you the truth. That these things will come. Now, there is an occasion for suffering as a result of direct persecution that the world will bring on us. Okay? There is also an occasion as a result of, in fact, uh, afflictions. Afflictions. What I call the contradictions of faith. Or some people call it the, the, the trials of faith. You see, uh, and for, for those of you who know a little bit of my story, I have some, I've, I've experienced some symptoms for years in my body. And when I read the gospel, I look at Mark, I, I keep wondering, you know, one day the Bible says that a leper, a leper was just, he saw Jesus, you know, and he said that if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me whole. And what did Jesus say? He said, I'm willing, behold, the leper was healed. And you will read story after story, especially if you read through the book of Mark. Bible says that we come to him, all those who are sick. And what will he do? He will heal every one of them. And as I've looked at these stories, I've known that, actually speaking, it's not a big deal for God to bring healing. It's not a big deal. In fact, the Bible says healing, they are what? They are the children's bread. So, in the eyes of God, healing is as trivial as bread. He told the woman, the Syrophoenician woman who came to ask for healing for her daughter, that it is not right to give the children's bread to what? To dogs, referring to healing. And so, when you look at all of these wonderful things that Jesus does, and you put it side by side with our own situations, what do you begin to see? There's a conflict, isn't there? There's a conflict. And sometimes it's not even the pain you are going through. It is that conflict that brings you suffering. And that is a challenge to faith. And that is one of the challenges that we face. Now, so there is that occasion. There is even the occasion of what God himself does. What Jesus referred to as offenses. Can you imagine John the Baptist? The Bible tells us that after he came and he was the, the forerunner of Christ, he had proclaimed that Jesus is going to come. He has done great things. He refused his entitlements. I hope you know John the Baptist was a priest. He was a priest entitled to all the sacrifices. He could have stayed in his father's house and become a priest. People would make sacrifice. He would eat all those fats, you know, all those things that they give to priests, you know, enjoy himself. But he chose to be in the wilderness, eating grasshoppers and honey and wearing skin, you know, on his body. And he has done that for several years, preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. And Jesus did come. He, he baptized him. And some few years later, John was arrested and put in prison, you know. 
as if that, that, that wasn't bad enough, John in prison heard how that Jesus was going to the house of Matthew and other tax collectors and he was feasting while he was in prison. And so he said, no, this can't be right. So he called some of his disciples and said, go and find out. Is he the one that should come or she will expect another? You see, even the, the, the disposition of God can bring offense. There is another story about the woman who came to Jesus and uh, she had saved, I don't know for how many years, the Bible says her saving was that ointment she had in an alabaster box. And Judas was there that day. And then this woman came and broke that ointment upon Christ, you know, and the Bible says it was a year's saving. And what happened to Judas? He was offended. Can you imagine Jesus Christ who had preached about helping the poor meeting the needs of those who were needy, you know, who had gone about, you know, walking all over the place, trying to, to relieve people of their, their situations. This day he was sitting down and watching a woman spend a year's earning on his head. And Judas was like, how can you do that? How can you do that? This thing could have been sold and given to the poor and Jesus said, leave her alone. Do you know that even the disposition of God to issues can bring you offense? And because of that, you need, to be, make sure, you need to make sure that these bedrocks are in place. These things that will make you, you know, to, 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 to ride through all the elements that might bring suffering to a Christian. So, like I said, we'll just mention them. I've talked about persecution that will come from the world. I've talked about the conflicts that you will have in your own life. You remember that... Um, was it Jacob's wife? After that she conceived, the Bible says the children struggled in her womb. And she was like, okay, if this, was, if this is a blessing, why am I thus? See, if it is so, why am I thus? That's King James language. If all of this was a blessing from God, why am I having this experience? And that was a conflict she had to resolve. And if you read through the Bible, there are all these cases all these cases. See Jesus himself. There's even the, the suffering of ministry. After three and a half years of so in which Jesus had ministered, the Bible says in Matthew, he began to curse the cities in which most of his signs were done. Chorazin, Capernaum, those cities in which he spent his life. You know, and in Matthew chapter 28 verse 11, the Bible says he made a new call. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What was Jesus saying? That even though I have spent my life these three years trying to reach to these people, and when you look at it, he appears to be very unsuccessful. He said, well, I'm ready to start again. And what was his reason? He said, I thank you, O Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, isn't it? And you have revealed it to babes. Because that is how it seems pleasing to you. That was how Jesus rode through that conflict. Because he had this bedrock of faith in place. Some of these things which we need to... So don't think that there was no conflict even in the life of Christ. Do you know that one day he told them, he told the people, he said that, he said that the queen of Sheba, she will arise on the day of judgment and do what? And condemn you. Because she came from the far east to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Isn't it? He said to them that the people of Nineveh, they will arise on the day of judgment and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And if you know Jonah, Jonah didn't even preach with love. Right? Jonah just preached as an excuse. And to think that a man like Jonah who went into the field to preach, not because he loved the people, because he was compelled, got better results than Christ, who preached, in fact, aiming to die for the people he was preaching, to think that Jonah got a better result. You think that wasn't a conflict for Christ? But how did he write through it? He said, I thank you, Father, because this is how it seems pleasing in your sight. So we need also to have the, what I call, the, 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 maybe the tentacles that we put on the ground that will enable us to write through. 
because we also have these conflicts, these challenges, these contradictions. We are experiencing them in our lives too. And nobody can tell how much of this we will experience in the future. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 6, the Bible says that, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Now that's the first thing. Now, we know that the Bible is trying to tell us that there are principles. You know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of using, but that's the area I know. If, if you know calculus, if you know calculus and you want to do differentiation, that's what they call differentiation from first principle. Okay? Now, you'll learn how that is. My professor used to say, at least do it, do it once in your lifetime. But when you begin to study it further and further, you will not need to go back to the first principles. But anytime you are confused... If I give you an expression and say, okay, find the derivative of this expression, and you're unable to do it, because there are advanced principles to do it. If you did not remember any of the advanced principles, you are always sure that if you go back to apply the first principle, you will get it right. Okay? So there are first principles that the Bible says, that even when, as you progress in your Christian life, in your Christian experience, if you were to meet a conflict that you couldn't solve, if you were to meet any situation that you cannot explain, if you didn't know any advanced principles to apply, if you came back to the first principles, you will get it right. Because those are foundational principles. They don't change. So the first thing the Bible tells us about these basic principles of Christ is repentance from dead works. And now there are two things there. The first thing is repentance. The other thing is dead works. And I mean, there are several explanations to dead works. Uh, and like I said, we are just mentioning it. Hopefully, we will have time to study it for ourselves. Now, dead works are works that people do uh, as a way of definition, hoping to be saved by them. Right? Hoping to be saved by them. And you know, sometimes when we begin to face these contradictions and because of the devil's assault on our minds, we think that it is because of something that we have not done or something we need to do, right? And that takes you away from the, the, the love of Christ that is shed on the cross, from that anchor that can hold you. And I, I used to have that conflict a lot. I used to feel that there's something I should just do, if only I could be more holy, if only I could be more dedicated, right? If only I could be more committed, but none of those is able to save. Irrespective of whatever conflict we are facing, whatever challenges we might have, we we'll always remember that it was the death of Christ, or it is the death of Christ on the cross that will continually hold us, that will ensure our safety. But the Bible talks about repentance, all right, and we can't, we can't just go into it. I mean, those who taught us the word of God, they took, I'm sure when they were teaching us repentance, it took days for them to teach us. And so we don't have the time. But repentance is not just, repentance is different from reformation. Am I right? It's different from renovation. Some people renovate their lives and think that they repented. It's different from refurbishment. That is not repentance. If you look at Acts chapter 28, where Paul was talking about his story, he says that God called him that he will, he will by through the preaching of the word, the eyes of the people will be opened, that they will turn from darkness unto light, and from the power of Satan unto God. So you see, repentance is turning from and turning to. Okay? So people turn from, but they don't turn to. That is still not repentance. If you turn from the power of the devil and you don't turn to the power of God, you have not repented. If somebody was a terrible sinner and he realized that this sin is going to hurt me and he were to stop sinning but he didn't turn to God, that is not biblical repentance. That is probably refurbishment or renovation. That is not your repentance. So repentance is to turn from one and to turn to the other. Isaiah chapter 55 the Bible says, let the wicked abandon his way, and let the unrighteous man abandon his thoughts. But he didn't stop there. He said, and let them turn to the Lord, 
isn't it? So that is what the Bible calls repentance. And you must be sure that that block is laid firmly in your life. That the block or the bedrock of repentance is firm. And repentance, even though we do it once symbolically, is a continual thing, isn't it? We keep repenting. We lay it down as a foundation, but we build on it. Each time in our life, as we progress, we come across issues that God is saying, well, take care of this. We repent at that point. There's a day in which we say, okay, God, I've repented. So you are laying the foundation that day. But you have to build on that. So the first thing the Bible talks about is repentance. The second thing the Bible talks about is faith toward God. And when I look at the life of Christ, I haven't seen somebody who had faith toward God. Do you know in the Psalms, Jesus praying, says that the Lord will not allow his bone to see corruption. Jesus trusted God even to the point of dying, believing that if he were to die, God will raise him up from the dead. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac when he was going to sacrifice his son. Uh, the people who were following him, when he got to the mountain, Mount Moriah, he said to them, Wait for us here. I and the Lord will go up and worship and we will come down. Now he knew he was going to sacrifice Isaac, right? He knew. But in his heart he believed that even if he were to sacrifice Isaac, he will come down with Isaac. I don't know how that works. Imagine a man who was going to sacrifice his son telling his servants that I and the Lord will go up to worship and we will come back. So what is, what is faith towards God saying? That even at death, you trust God. Jesus said, even if I die, God will not allow my bone to see corruption. Do you remember the story of Joseph? When he was to die, how he called his brethren and said, don't leave my bone in Egypt. Don't leave my bone in Egypt. The Bible tells us, if you look at the story of the, the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, the Bible says that there were people who believed God for deliverance they never saw, but they didn't stop believing. They were sown asunder. Some of them were stoned. They were hoping for a promise that God gave them, which they never saw in their lifetime, but they held on to it. So that's the kind of faith we're talking about. That is the foundation that will help us to write through. So it says, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms. And you see that baptism is plural. It's not just the immersion into water. There's a Bible called the doctrine of baptisms. All right? And one of the baptisms the Bible talked about in the, in the Bible is when, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's that baptism. There's the baptism of John. There's the baptism of water. There's baptism into Christ and all of that. But baptism, generally the one we do, you know, is symbolic. But it's a testament to what has happened to us. It's a testimony we give to the world. One of the things that baptism does to us is that it testifies to the world. Because the world doesn't see what has happened to us, right? If somebody were to come to Christ and give his life to Christ, his face does not change. If it was a case that when you come to the church and say, Lord, I surrender my life, let's say someone like me that is black, when I surrender my life, I become white. <laughs> it's evident. Everybody will see that, right? They say, oh, Josiah, something has happened to Josiah. He used to be black. <laughs> That's evident. But he is now white. Okay? So, that will be clear. But because it doesn't happen that way, we need to go through baptism as a testament to them that we've been initiated into something different, right? Into the body of Christ. Baptism is our witness to the world. And if that is not in place, you cannot escape the world. You can't escape the world. Uh, the world is, a, is, a, is, is, is something that won't let you go. If you read the story of Jeroboam, Jeroboam who became king when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was, the kingdom was divided. The Bible says Jeroboam sat one day and thought that, well, 
if I leave these people to keep going to, to Jerusalem to sacrifice, he said they will leave me and follow after David because they have an affinity for David, right? So what did he do? He built an idol by the border and said, okay, you don't need to cross over to Jerusalem. Let's do all the worship we do here. Each time I think of the world, that's what I think about. It's something to hold you down. It's fashion, it's way of life, it's ideas, it's principles that we hold down Christians. And so you see that, I mean, look at your phones. Look at your phones. A few years ago, it was iPhone 5, right? Now it's iPhone X. I hear iPhone X is $1,000. For me as a student, $1,000 is almost equal to a car. (laughs) Do you know that? Do you know that those of us who are students, our cars are worth (laughs) $1,500? Yeah, my car is worth $1,500, the one I'm using. It's a terrible thing in my mind that a phone is worth, and I mean, if you, have, if you can afford it, buy it by all means. But in my mind, <laughs> I'm like, how can I spend $1,000 which I can use to buy a car to buy a phone? But that's not even the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that, do you know that in a few weeks' time there will be iPhone something and you will keep chasing it? That's the world. That's the principle that tells you that the one you have is not enough. And when I look at this these devices, because I'm an engineer, all right, I look at these gadgets that people are having, I can tell you that people don't use up to 20% of the capacity they have. So 80% of your money is waste. <laughs> it's waste. But you see, the word tells you that unless you have it, you are not part of it, right? Unless you have it, you are losing something. And so you see Christians keep chasing it. I've heard stories about people who are in debt, but they have a very big truck on which they are paying hundreds of dollars every month. And I say, why not get something small and not be in debt? Isn't that sensible? But you see, they can't do that because the world tells them that actually this is what is happening. This is how you should live. There are several people who, if there was no templates of getting married, would have married the way they know how, right? But because there's this template that everybody is trying to to live by, you see that people are struggling for what really they don't need. And the Bible says there's a doctrine of baptisms, a testimony to the world that I don't have to be like you, which you have to have in place. Otherwise, the world will not let you go. Paul says that not only is the world dead to him, that he himself is dead to the world. In other words, if the world wanted to do something and they are looking for people to invite for that occasion, Paul will not be on their list. Because Paul has a testimony to them that I'm not one of you. And for us, it is this doctrine of baptisms, this evidence we give to the world that we died with Christ and we are raised with him that finally brings a separation between us and the world. And you need to have it in place. In all the discussion that is going on now, I know it's such that if you want to come from the perspective of the scripture, you know that you'll be shamed, isn't it? You'll be regarded as intolerant, you'll be regarded as outdated and all of that. And then there will be some Christians who will be ashamed because there is a template that everybody follows. And they don't want to be different from it. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, what did the Bible say? It says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now don't be conformed to this world. And the way I understand conforming is it's like a manufacturing process. You want to manufacture 100 of a given item. So what do you do? Do you do them separately? No, you do a template. You just stamp it. And before you know it, you have 100. That's how the world is. There's a form into which they want to fit all of us. And it is the doctrine of baptism, the testimony that we give to them of the reality of what has happened in our hearts that delivers us from that. 
and we need to have this also in place. And so the Bible says another issue is the laying on of hands. And I know that people explain laying of hands in different ways. Yes, there's laying of hands for impartation, for identification. All of that is true. But, you know, I, I like to look at things just in their basic. So what does it mean? I mean, if it is just laying of hands, just the physical laying of hands, I mean, it doesn't really mean so much. We are not the only ones who do it. It's not just Christians that do it. You see, most other people do it. Other religions do it. So for us, the physical laying of hands must also symbolize something else. And the way I understand laying of hands, you know, figuratively, if I were to say, don't let me lay my hands on you, what, what, what do I mean? I think I'll mean discipline, right? I think that's what I mean. Laying of hands. Laying of hands means that as a Christian, even though this might not be very popular, you have to come under someone else's authority. You know, I have experienced two societies. I've come from Nigeria. I've experienced a society. We have different models. In our society, our model is the community. So we don't have I. All right? In fact, we, we go to the extreme in our society. You also go to the extreme. Your model is the individual. Our model is the society. For instance, in my model, when I'm getting married, the common phrase is that our wife in my mother. That's how my wife is seen. She's seen as our wife. Okay? So what it means is that she has certain responsibility to the family. If she was staying in a, in a compound house, probably she would cook the meals and do all of that. She's not an individual. What we say is our child. They say it is the village that gives birth to a child. That's our model. Your model is the individual. The individual is prime. Okay? It's me. I. What I want. What I need. That's your model. So people here are fiercely independent. And so I know that what I'm saying might not be popular, but it is the word of God. That there is no such independence. Because sometimes you could mistake culture of society for the culture of the church and not know that they are different. That there is no such fierce independence in the Bible. That in the Bible, every child of God that comes to experience Christ is expected to come under someone else's authority, at least the church. They're expected to come under the authority of the church. And it's not because that authority is perfect. It's because that's how God designed it. Okay. And I speak this especially to those who are young. Don't, you see, the first people you come under the authority are your parents. And it's very, very vital. If you read the book of Proverbs, the Bible talks about what happens to a child who listens to the instructions of his parents. If you look at Peter, the Bible says, he was talking about the elder of the church. And he says, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hands of God, so that in due time he will lift you up. And the mighty hands of God that the Bible was referring to there was the hand of the elder, not God himself. If God were to come and say, stand up, will you not stand up? Let's say God showed up here now and say, please, can you stand up? What will you do? You will stand up. If I were to come and say, stand up, what will you think? See, who does he think he is? Isn't it? That's what you would think. But the way God designs it is that if God wants to exert his authority over you, it's me he's going to use. He won't come himself and do it. Do you know that? Do you know that if God wants to exercise his authority over you, for instance, in our setting now, we have Pastor Chris. Do you know it is Pastor Chris who we use to exercise the authority? Do you think God himself will come and ask you to do it? He won't. He won't. So there's that teaching of laying of hands that you have to come under somebody's authority. It's very important especially for those who are young. You know, I see a generation of people who will not have any benefit at all from their elders. You know, because in life, for anything to flow, there must be a gradient. Am I right? There must be a gradient. If you want water to flow, you have to establish a gradient so that water flows down. 
if there's no gradient between us and a generation that has gone ahead of us in terms of us respecting them, what they have cannot flow to us, no matter how hard they try. And don't think they don't have something. They do. My father didn't go to high school. <laughs> My father stopped at elementary. Today, his son is getting a PhD. Imagine that I rebelled against him. Huh? Imagine that. Imagine that I rebelled against him. I said, what do you know? Is it not elementary you stopped? And he said, okay, let's see who will pay your school fees. <laughs> Where do you think I will be? <laughs> uh, will I be doing a PhD today? I won't. And I have experienced the joy, the joy, the safety of coming under authority. When we were in college, there were a lot of mistakes that my friends did that I did not even contemplate. It wasn't because I wasn't as bad as they were, it's because I was afraid of authority. <laughs> I knew that if I, were, if I choose to do that thing, there are people over my life who will knock me on my head. <laughs> I knew that, but these guys didn't have any authority figure. So I would call my friend and say, John, where are you going? Oh, he's going to McCordy. There's one girl there. So, so what happened to that girl? So no, we're no longer together. So where are you going again? He's going to this other place. And before they left college, they've left several broken hearts. And I, did, I didn't even, the first person I spoke to was the person I married. <laughs> yeah, because before I even went, I had to be permitted. I had to discuss with authority and say, well, I've seen this lady and this is what I'm thinking. I say, well, we'll think about it with you. You just go and wait. <laughs> I say, all right. So I waited. And I don't regret it. So there's coming, laying of hands, coming under authority. It's not fashionable. It doesn't look nice. But do it. And don't be afraid. Yeah, it's risky. But don't be afraid that somebody will waste your life. God hasn't given anybody that right. God says, all souls are mine. And if anybody in your life is going to cost your life to, to become terrible, God will take the person out of the way. It's not your business. Okay? But you on your part, submit to authority. It's a foundation toward God to, to, to enable us to ride through the crisis that we face. There are people in our midst that God gave oversight. Oversight means I'm seeing above your head. In simple terms, right? So you see, I, I didn't go to theology. I don't know all those things, but I know it in simple terms. Oversight means I'm seeing over your head. Okay? So I can see beyond what you are seeing. And I can tell you, don't go this direction. But if you don't have oversight over your life, then you will have to learn from your own mistakes. And sometimes your mistakes are fatal. So the Bible says there's laying on of hands. There's resurrection of the dead. There's eternal judgment. We know, Job said, that even if in this body of mine I die, that he's sure that his Redeemer lives, isn't it? And that he will stand up again with him. I'm not quoting it right, I know. So there's resurrection of the dead. That whatever it is we are going through, whatever it is we are experiencing, we are very sure that in this body we will see the Lord. Praise the Lord. We will see the Lord. And if there are those who are against us, if there are those who are fighting us, if there are those that we wish we could take revenge against, the Bible says there is eternal judgment. There is eternal judgment. God is a God of justice. You might feel offended. You might feel the government is against you. You might feel that people have been given right over and above you, but there is eternal judgment. And let all of these things be in place so that in the days ahead, will be able to, to face whatever it is that will come against us. Now, I want to conclude by looking at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It said, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. 
and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meats with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, this is another thing that is very crucial. The Bible says they continued daily in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. This is another bedrock of our faith. Fellowship. Fellowship is not coming just coming together. Fellowship means that I actually know you. You know my challenge. You know my experience. We are together. Okay? That's fellowship. Prayers. Breaking of bread. We just did it this morning. And, you know, I don't get to do it often, which I don't like. You know, I don't like it. I, I mean, back home, at least once a month, when I was... I, but these days, I move around a lot, so I don't get to do it often. And it's not right. But it's good, as the pastor was saying this morning, as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of the Lord. It's one of our pillars. Okay? Breaking of bread, fellowship, and praying. Again, like I said, I'm not going into details in any of these things. I'm just trying to mention them so that we could have them in our hearts. When we got born again, they used to tell us that a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Okay? And it rhymed, so we remembered it. <laughs> a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. So it was our ambition. I mean, from the very day I got born again, it was my ambition to pray one, at least one hour every day. It was very, very, very difficult. So I used to keep my watch. <laughs> I'll be looking at my watch and praying. Say, have I gotten to one hour yet? No, <laughs> let's continue. <laughs> no, that, that's not how you should do it. You should start at your level. But the idea is that we're taught to pray. We're taught to pray every day. We're taught to read our Bibles every day. And those things are important. The Bible says we should pray all manners of prayer. Okay? And I believe, actually, that some of the things that has helped me, even presently, would be the prayers I prayed years ago. Years ago before I knew that I'll be here. Um, so let's, let's finish from where we started, Hebrews. I want to talk about the risk of neglecting uh, what, what we, we, we've discussed today. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and they have tasted the good word of, of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, this is the risk of neglecting. The Bible says it is impossible that if a man had experienced God and he falls away, Let's say somebody from amongst our midst now goes out and begins to say that the blood of Christ is actually of no value. Okay? That Jesus actually is not the way of salvation. And you know, if you read history, that it has happened like that, right? It has happened. I read of um, Malcolm X. Malcolm X is a Jew, even though he was a German Jew. And he was brought up, you know the way Jews are, very strict. Very strict. And one day he wrote to his mother and said that the ark in his holies of holies has been broken. That the ark has shattered and there's no way of putting it back together. And from there on, you know what Malcolm X did. Okay? Sorry, Karl Marx, not Malcolm X. I know I was mixing it. Karl Marx. Okay? You know all the things he wrote from there on. He couldn't find a way back. That is the risk. That if these bedrocks are not in place and these challenges face you that we have talked about and they lead to you falling away to restore you back again to repentance, the Bible says, not me now, that it is impossible. When we were young, we used to have these tracts. I don't know what, um, they came from here, so maybe some of you would have seen them. These tracts that talked about the heart of man, you know, and how to find salvation. So they showed, first of all, the bad heart that had all sorts of wild animals in it. And then this heart came to Christ and then lights flooded the heart 
and then all the bad animals, the peacocks that represented pride, the frogs and all of that were flushed out of the heart and then the things of God came into the heart. Do you know the man that wrote that tract? The man that wrote that tract fell away and he himself said that he just impossible that he could not find repentance anymore. That he couldn't find repentance. And some of the movements you hear about today Jehovah Witnesses, all of that. They didn't begin badly. Some of them didn't begin badly. There were people who made predictions that were not in the Bible and just could not find the humility to repent. They couldn't find it. Do you remember Esau, the brother of Jacob? You know he had his day. One day the Bible says that, well, he was sitting down and then Jacob came back and said, sell me your birthright. And Esau was tired of it. He said, what shall this birthright do to me? Why does everybody keep talking about birthright? Daddy, birthright, mommy, birthright, Jacob, birthright. Okay, you have it. And so the Bible says he exchanged it for pottage. And you see, that was bad. But he had his many years to turn, didn't he? He had several opportunities to turn. When they came to the dining table and they were eating, and they said, okay, elder brother take before younger brother. Esau will take first. And as long as he was still getting the benefit of the elder brother, he thought, well, everything is fine. It's just symbolic handover. But on the day that it mattered, when he sought repentance, did he find it? He did not. You remember, uh, what's his name? Judas? What did Jesus do? Jesus kept telling him. I'm sure that Jesus talked to Judas. I'm sure of that. In fact, on the day that he ultimately went to sell him, Bible says there was one last effort that the Lord made to recover him. That he dipped the bread and gave it to him, right? And after he ate it, and even that would not change him, the Bible says the devil entered into him. When it was time for repentance, could he find it? No. So that's the risk. That the Bible says it is impossible that if somebody had experienced all of this and he falls away, to bring him back again to repentance is impossible. So today we have talked about why is it necessary? Because there will be challenges and we will not have a free ride. There was only one person who was qualified to have a free ride by the quality of his life. That was Christ. He was the only one qualified to have a free ride. But even he did not have a free ride. So that tells you that you yourself will not have a free ride. You will have these challenges. So it is necessary that you make sure that these foundations are in place. That you don't rebel against authority. That you don't compromise to the world, that you always testify to them about what has happened to you. There's no need to hide it. That you repent, irrespective of your level. If you look at Saul and David, Saul didn't sin much more than David, did he? He didn't. What was the difference? That when both of them were challenged, when both of them were faced with what they did, one man repented, the other man said, honor me before the people. That was Saul. He said, don't disgrace me, I'm the king. He said, honor me before these people. And what did he do? They said, go and kill the Amalekites. He didn't kill all of them. But what did David do? David slept with somebody's granddaughter's age and killed her husband. But when he was confronted, what did he do? Right there, while he was sitting on his throne, the Bible says he came down and repented. That was the difference between these two guys. That this thing is always in your own heart. You know that if you are confronted with anything, it doesn't matter what you have become. It doesn't matter the level you have reached. It doesn't matter who is watching. And you are confronted. You are able, like David, to be noble and come down from your throne and say, Lord, it is I. I did it. I'm wrong. Forgive me. You make sure that these things are in place. Okay. And we've seen the issue of fellowship, prayer, our own personal devotions. And finally, we talked about the risk of neglecting it. The risk of saying, no, it doesn't matter. We can just go on. Things will continue like this. We've seen that risk too. So, it's your turn.
Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the privilege of listening to you. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you will give us the heart to do your word. Um, We pray you help us to sift through all the voices and to hear your voice. We pray, Lord, that anywhere that there is weakness, anywhere that we are paralyzed, that even though we desire to do the right thing, that we are unable to do it. We pray, Lord, that you will grant strength to our bodies and help us to go up this mountain. And so we thank you for this assembly and for your plan. And because the Bible says you who began a good thing, that you are able to accomplish it. And so we trust you, Lord, that whatever you began to do here, that you will finish it to the glory of your name. We know that we are facing some issues of conflict ourselves. And in all of this, Lord, we hold on to you because uh, you will make all things right. Thank you, Father, for answering these prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.